Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? I don't know if you noticed, but I was hitting that note over there, man. Donnie, I was hitting that note. <laughs> uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to uh, Acts chapter 8, the New Testament. And if you're a guest with us today, just so you know what we're doing, uh, we're in a series right now called Going Viral. Uh, it's a study of this first century document known as Acts that records how the early church uh, and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading quickly from the streets of uh, Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And uh, through the first seven chapters, uh, we've seen um, the church grow from a very small group of Jesus followers to somewhere around 15,000 people, uh, with that number increasing uh, every day. And uh, the religious elite in Jerusalem weren't very happy about that. In fact, at one point, if you recall, out of pure jealousy, they arrest, they interrogate, they torture, and threaten the apostles and ordered them to not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Uh, and yet, that didn't stop Peter, John, or the entire church from doing what they were compelled to do, and that was share the good news of Jesus with the people of their city. Um, and as a result, tension in Jerusalem mounted until finally the temple leaders kill a man named Stephen, simply because of his faith in Jesus. And here in chapter 8, we're told that on that very day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles uh, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And keep in mind, up until this point, the church remained you know, relatively local, uh, with, stayed within the confines of, of Jerusalem. But suddenly, this surge of violence and persecution kind of launches the church forward, uh, launches the church out on mission for the first time. Remember, Jesus said to his followers, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that's essentially what begins to happen. As we saw last week, believers leave Jerusalem. Many of them head north into Samaria. And there, uh, and there Christians embody the mission of Jesus by sharing the good news uh, of God's love and grace, by, by serving the physical and spiritual needs of the people there, and inviting into a community those who are racially and culturally different. And a lot of Samaritans started coming to faith in Jesus, and there was this beautiful reconciliation taking place, reconciliation between God, uh, people and their God, reconciliation between uh, people and one another. It was, it was a beautiful thing. We're told that there was great joy in Samaria because of this. Well, one of the leaders in the church who played a significant role in what was happening there was a guy named Philip, and um, he was very involved in that, but on one day, in the midst of all the excitement of what was happening in Samaria, something unexpected happens to him. And uh, that story begins in chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says to him, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, I got to tell you, this is one of my, uh, this is one of my favorite uh, accounts in the book of Acts, because, uh, well, not only is it historically rich in information, which I like, uh, not only is it theologically significant, which is important, but it's also emotionally charged, at least it is for me, because when you delve beneath the surface and begin to see what actually happens, uh, 
Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just very moving. And I got to tell you, there's so much here that we could talk about, um, and we only have so much time. So I want to identify a couple of key things uh, that we learn from this particular text, okay? First, we learn about two very different men. If you recall, uh, we were introduced to Philip back in chapter 6 when he and a few others are chosen by the church, affirmed by the apostles to, uh, to make sure that all the widows in the Jerusalem church were cared for well. But when persecution in the city broke out, Philip, along with most of the other Christians, headed north to Samaria where he had a very significant impact on people. And without rehashing all the details, we know that Philip was a wise and godly person. Uh, he was a middle-class Hellenistic Jew. In other words, he was ethnically Jewish, but culturally Greek. He came from a group of, of Jewish people who were born outside of Israel. So they're, they're, they're culturally Greek. Greek was their, their first language. They, they read the, the Greek New, uh, uh, Old Testament, the Pentateuch, uh, the Septuagint. And so he was culturally Greek, ethnically Jewish, but now he was a committed follower of Jesus, the Messiah. The second man, who we've not yet met, is identified in the text as an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, the queen of the Ethiopians. And uh, based on this information alone, we can put together a rather detailed description of this person. Starting with the obvious, he was Ethiopian, uh, a title given to people at the time who lived in northeast Africa, specifically in the Upper Nile region in what is today known as the Sudan. And the African uh, kingdom that existed there in the first century was the kingdom of Nubia. The title Ethiopian uh, comes from the Greek term Ethiopia, which literally means charred face. So this man had dark skin. And just for the record, in the first century, that Ethiopia was not a derogatory term. Uh, in fact, according to ancient Greek geographer Strabo and historian Diodorus Siculus, the Greeks and Romans were uh, enamored with and captivated with dark-skinned Africans. In fact, uh, the greatest of Greek historians, Herodotus, known as the father of history, uh, when he viewed people, he didn't view people in terms of race, but in terms of geography. He talked to people uh, from you know, Europe or Asia or Africa. And in his writing, it's interesting, he doesn't talk of black people, but he talks of people with black skin. And after traveling to Northeast Africa, uh, in his opinion, uh, he says the Ethiopians are the most beautiful of all peoples. In addition, the text tells us that this man was a eunuch, in other words, a sexually altered human being. The Greek term for eunuch literally means alone in bed. And it was a term that came to refer to those who had been castrated. In the ancient world, in ancient kingdoms, including the African kingdom of Nubia, castration was common for men who served the royal family, meant to protect the women of the royal family. In this case, he served the Kendeki, the queen of the Ethiopians. And uh, this man was essentially her CFO. He was in charge of all the treasury of the kingdom. Um, being a eunuch meant that uh, he had no wife, no children, no family, and so he was alone on this journey um, about 1,100 miles from home. What was he doing? Well, he was heading back from Jerusalem where he had gone to worship, and so we know, we know he was a religious seeker. We know that he was a person who held some knowledge of, some interest in, and some respect for the God of Israel. At the time, he would have been known as a God-fearer, um, but he wasn't Jewish, so suffice it to say, we know a lot about the, this person, and uh, he and Philip were very, very different. They were different racially, culturally, geographically, professionally, religiously, physically. And uh, with that being true, the next thing the text teaches us 
is about the heart of God because clearly, clearly the meeting of these two was no accident, right? I mean, by, by way of an angelic visit, Philip is instructed to go south uh, to the desert road that led between, between Jerusalem and led to Gaza on the coast. And once there, uh, he gets prompted by the Holy Spirit to approach this man riding in a chariot, reading the Old Testament text of Isaiah out loud, which was a common thing. So there's really, there's no mistaking it here. I mean, God knew and cared about this Ethiopian eunuch and wanted Philip, he wanted Philip to go share with him the good news of Jesus, the good news of his grace and love. See, when it comes, when it comes to human beings, God does not discriminate. His love is for all people, no matter, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter how they look or what they do. And this divinely orchestrated encounter between these two very, very different men reveals God's heart. It also reveals the inclusiveness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's offered to everybody, including, including this foreigner, this non-Jewish, sexually altered man. Um, which shouldn't surprise us because, I mean, from the very beginning, God has wanted his church to kind of break through racial and cultural and socioeconomic barriers to love and to serve and bring the message of, of, of grace to as many people as possible, right? To be witnesses of Jesus, not just in Jerusalem, but also in Samaria and where else? To the ends of the earth, is how Jesus put it, which interestingly enough was what the Greeks and Romans called Ethiopia. So in my opinion, it could be argued that God, God allowed persecution in Jerusalem to erupt um, in order to kind of move Christians forward, kind of push them out of their comfort zones and, and pursue the mission that Jesus left them, to engage with people uh, of different races and different cultures in different geographical locations. And I'm convinced that if Christians refuse to do that or, or disdain or hold in contempt those who are different or simply ignore them, that God's heart is broken and grieved. I mean, think about, what, think about what God's Spirit says to Philip here on the road. He says, Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Here's my, here's my Ray K translation. Go up to that racially different, sexually altered Ethiopian. That's right, the foreigner you'd normally have nothing to do with, and stay close to him. Why? Because the gospel doesn't belong to one race or culture more than it does to any other. Now, you realize that that idea sets, its, sets itself in direct conflict with the thinking of some people in our society today, right? I mean, there are, there are those who say, look, religion, religion is nothing more than a function of culture. It's an invention of culture that helps keep people together. So, so you know, uh, Europeans and North Americans have Christianity and Asia has uh, Buddhism and Shintoism and Hinduism and the Middle East has Judaism and Islam and so forth and so on. But that's not really true. Dr. Laman Sana is a professor of history and missiology at Yale University, and he's, he's African. He was born in Gambia. He was raised a Muslim. Uh, and after studying Jesus, he became a Christian, and he writes a lot about, about Christianity and culture and how they, how they blend, how they mix, how they impact one another. And in his book titled, Whose Religion is Christianity?, he points out how this idea that religion is just a function of, of, of culture seems to be the case when looking at most religions. And he talks about this. He said, take, take Islam, for example. 96% of Muslims live around 
uh, in and around the Middle East, North Africa. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus are in India and South Asia. Christianity is completely different. It's not at all geographically, culturally localized. It's, it's really the only true worldwide faith. Because where are the Christians? 25% are in Central and South America. 22% are in Africa. 15% in Asia. 12% in North America. 20% in Europe. No other, no other religion looks like that. Why? Because none are as culturally inclusive as Christianity. I mean, you know, like the nation of Korea. nation of Korea went from 0% Christian to 50% Christian in just 100 years. Africa went from 9% Christian to 50% Christian in 100 years. And, and, and China is on the same exact path. The church in China is exploding with growth. No, that's unprecedented for, for a faith to move into a continent or into a culture and just explode like that. In his book, Laman Sani speaks to this, this cultural uh, inclusiveness of Christianity by way of being African. And he says, you know, as Africans, we believe, he says, we believe in a spiritual realm. That's, that's part of being African. He says, we believe that the world is filled with good spirits and evil spirits. It's a supernatural place. And for the African, the problem is fear. You know, what do we do about the evil spirits? How do we overcome them? He says, but as an African, if you go to a place like Yale or Harvard or Princeton or someplace like that, the academic elites of today who are all about and who tout acceptance and tolerance and multiculturalism, they're, they're going to say, hey, we love you. We love your culture. We love your food. We love your dress. We love your art. We love everything about you except the whole supernatural thing. You're wrong on that part. There is no God. There's no spiritual realm. Everything has a scientific explanation. So we love everything about you, but you've got to leave that part behind. Lamansana says, essentially, they'll try to destroy the core of your Africanness and make you like them, modern, secular, individualistic, white Westerners. And he goes on, he writes, he says, but Christianity is different. He says, Christianity comes along and respects my Africanness. It, it lets me stay African because it says, yes, there are evil spirits and good spirits, but Jesus Christ has overcome the evil ones, and through him, you don't have to be afraid anymore. He says it's the inclusive, the cultural inclusiveness of Christianity that makes it so, so unique. And he, and he writes, he says, Africans sense that. They sensed in their hearts that Jesus didn't mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible Savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Look, here's the deal. Christianity is the faith of over 2,000 different language groups around the world. Believers pray and worship in more languages than any other religion in the world. Why? Because Christianity is far more, far more culturally inclusive than any other belief system, including secularism. It's not an invention of one culture or another. It is good news of God, therefore it transcends human culture. Scottish theologian Dr. Richard Balcom in his book Bible and Mission puts it this way. He says, certainly, certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural, cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. And it does. So the gospel is uniquely inclusive for all peoples, all cultures. However, the text also reveals that the gospel makes exclusive claims, right? I mean, we're told that Philip ran up to the chariot. Why did he run? Probably because it was moving. 
And uh, and I, I get this I get this crazy I get this crazy vision of of Philip you know kind of trug, trudging down trudging down the road because I'm not sure he was out jogging every morning I think he's like running up trying to get close to this thing and he ends up getting close enough and he he heard the man reading out loud from the Old Testament book of Isaiah and so he says and I can't get this image out of my mind I could just see him he's huffing and puffing hey hey uh, hey do you understand uh, uh, what you're reading I don't know if he did that but that's in my head I can't get it out of my head. I'm like projecting, I think, you know. That's what I would be doing, huffing and puffing. But he gets there and he says, you understand what you're reading? And the man says, well, how can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? And he invites Philip to join him. Hopefully he stopped the chariot and let him get on. Um, and, and get this, here's the scripture he was reading. It's from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, get this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, I don't, I don't know if there was any preliminary chit-chat on the chariot. Like, dude, why are you running next to my chariot on an isolated desert road? It's creepy. You know, I, there's nothing like that recorded. So I don't know. I'm guessing there were some pleasantries shared, you know, some introductions. But following that, the Ethiopian says, now about the scripture I was reading. Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip says, definitely someone else. And he begins to explain the biblical narrative of redemption and how more than 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah predicted the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, who would offer his life as the sacrifice for humanity's sin, be unjustly condemned, and led like a lamb to the slaughter. Deity put to death, and the place of humanity, our place. And then he told him the good news about Jesus and how through faith in him as Savior, God's grace has poured out on all of us, Jew, Samaritan, African. Our sins are forgiven. Eternal life guaranteed. Now, clearly, Philip, Philip wasn't a very good postmodernist uh, because he doesn't respond to the question of, you know, tell me what, is it, tell me what this scripture means. He doesn't respond saying, well, you know, you've, you've got to kind of figure that out for yourself. You've got to figure out what's true for you. You need to decide what the scripture means to you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, here's what it means. Here's the truth, Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that while Christianity is radically inclusive, it is at the exact same time radically exclusive in terms of what it claims to be true. I mean, take note of this. Every other religion's founder, prophet, sage, whoever, every other, every other religion's leader says, here's what you need to do to get to God. And imagine that every one of them offers just an alternative path to find him. But they all work. You know, they all work. They all get you there, whether it's the eightfold, eightfold path of Buddhism or the five pillars of Islam or the five principles of Hinduism. They'll all get you there. They'll all get you to God. There's just different ways, different things that you have to do. But see, that leaves Christianity out of the mix. Because unlike everyone else, Jesus didn't come and say, I'm here to help you find a path to God. He said, I am God here to find you. I am the path. He said, Jesus put it this way, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father except through me. And by the way, it's not about what you do, it's about what I've done for you. And because of the radical nature of that, the radical nature of Jesus' claims, it's only logical then if, that if one religion is so vastly different than all the rest, either, either it's better than the others or it's worse. It's a lie but it can't just be one more among many. 
It's too radically different. Here's the point. Jesus made exclusive truth claims, and therefore, paradoxically, Christianity is the most inclusive and the most exclusive of all the world's religions. And so Philip, Philip shares the truth of Jesus with this man, and the good news of God's grace offered through him. And we don't know how long the conversation took. I mean, I don't, I don't think it could have taken very long because at some point on the ride, the Ethiopian eunuch believes in Jesus. He puts his faith in Jesus. So how do you know that? We know it because he says, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, I thought this was a desert road. You know, where, where's the water coming from? Um, but it's interesting because uh, in the Middle East, and I've been, I've been to the desert of, of Jordan, and they have these things called wadis. And a wadi is basically a deep crevice in, in the ground that kind of goes in between um, mountains or hills where water, during the rainy season, water will run down and collect in the wadi and run off. And, uh, and so there's a wadi, a very well-known wadi, Wadi El-Hesi, which is just northeast of Gaza. And a lot of scholars uh, are under the opinion that this is where these men stopped. Uh, but uh, there, are, there's, there are watering places along that road. And so they come to a place, whether it was Wadi El-Hesi or another one, and he says, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? So obviously, Philip had explained to him about baptism. That word means washing. So baptism is ceremonial washing. Explained to him how Jesus said, you know, once an individual expresses personal faith in me, I want you to publicly wash them as a symbol of that, as a way for them to identify with me in my death, my burial, my resurrection, and to illustrate the cleansing of sin, the washing away of sin, and new life, and association with a new tribe, a new family, a new, a new people. Um, you know, that's why at Parkview we baptize believers because Jesus, well, Jesus said to do it. In fact, in two weeks on Sunday the 28th, we're baptizing a whole bunch of people. And if you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus uh, and you call yourself a Christian, I really encourage you to do it. Not as a required, empty religious ritual, but as a wonderful, exciting, and demonstrative way of expressing your faith in Jesus to the world. Now, I find it interesting how often when I talk to people about baptism, they'll say, well, why should I be baptized? The Ethiopian eunuch asks the opposite question. Literally, he says, why shouldn't I be baptized? What stands in my way? Fear? Pride? Lack of water? Translation, he says, if I truly believe in Jesus and he calls me to baptism as a public declaration of faith, why shouldn't I do it? Let's make it happen. And so as his chariot comes up on some water on the side of the road, he tells the driver to stop. He and Philip both get out. They went down into the water. Philip baptized him. I don't, look, I don't, I don't know how much water there was. I don't know if he dunked him, poured him, sprinkled him. I don't know. Point is, he went and he did it. Not because he had to. Not because he had to. He wanted to. He truly believed, which leads to the final lesson of the passage. It teaches us about the simplicity of the gospel. The good news. This guy gets some. <laughs> the good news was he wasn't required to do anything. He wasn't required to say anything. He wasn't required to pray a certain prayer or give a certain amount of money or to perform, perform a certain number of, of tasks or to get to the temple enough times in his life. Nothing like that. I mean, with a simple explanation of God's love for all people and how Jesus was sacrificed for our sins and through faith in him we are forgiven. The grace of God is kind of poured out on all of us and we're welcomed into the family of God. With that, Philip invites him to believe, and this Ethiopian eunuch does so. 
He puts his faith in Jesus. And here's where it gets emotional, at least for me. Because think about this guy. Here's a man who had traveled over a 1,000 miles just to worship God. Just to worship God. But he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple in Jerusalem. You realize that, right? He wouldn't have been allowed in. Why? Well, for one, he was Ethiopian. He was a foreigner, a non-Jewish person. And two, he was a eunuch, a sexually altered human being. In other words, to so many at the time, this man was a total religious and social outcast, considered unclean, unacceptable. And here, here he was. Here he was. He had gone to all this effort, all this time, all this trouble, all this expense and risk to get to Jerusalem only to be rejected and excluded by the religious community. Imagine the devastation. I mean, imagine the, the, the disappointment of that, the personal hurt, the woundedness, and the, the, the absolute sense of isolation. And now here he is, back on the desert road, alone, no family to return to, no friends with him, riding in a chariot, pouring over the Scripture as he goes. Why the Scriptures? Maybe it was in hopes of finding some, some word, some small inclination and indication that God knew about him and that God cared about him and that God would not condemn him or reject him. And what happens? God sends Philip with the good news of divine love and grace. And the man welcomes it and he embraces it by putting his faith in Jesus, who, by the way, was also condemned and rejected by the same religious community. And, you know, I can't help but wonder if after this life-changing event, if, if the eunuch went back to the Scripture and continued to read through the book of Isaiah, because the section that he was reading about the Messiah, about the Savior, Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 53 says, He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's what he was reading, right? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. You know what comes shortly after that? God says this, My salvation is close at hand. Let no foreigner say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, which means I'm worth nothing. To them, I'll give a memorial and a name better than, my, than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Man, I tell you what, I hope the Ethiopian eunuch kept reading because in that text, God affirms his love and grace for all people and for this man specifically. But I don't know if he kept reading. I do know this. He never saw Philip again. But after being baptized, he went on his way rejoicing, just like the Samaritans. Because that's what the good news does. That's what God's grace does. It brings joy into our lives and experiences. Unfortunately, this man is never mentioned again in Scripture, so no one knows for sure uh, what happens to him. It's presumed that he returned to Africa. Uh, tradition has it that he started sharing the good news of Jesus there and established a Christian community in the Sudan. Uh, and there's some historical evidence uh, for that, yet there's no way to verify it. Certainly, we know that Christianity took root in Africa long before it dominated Europe. So was it this Ethiopian eunuch who first brought the message of Jesus to that continent? Maybe. Maybe not. Whatever the case, one thing's for sure. 
his experience, his story reveals the heart of God and how he loves people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every culture, and how he cares about the ridiculed, the stigmatized, the marginalized, and the outcast. And through Jesus, his grace, God's grace is offered to everyone and anyone who will receive it. The simple message of God's grace in Jesus transformed the life of that Ethiopian eunuch forever. What has God's grace done to you? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you this morning for this record of uh, this interaction, not, not because it's his, of its historical um, interest, although it is interesting, not, not just because um, it has some theological uh, significance, which is obviously it does, but I'm just I'm thankful because it it reveals to us your heart for people. It reveals to us how you love men and women from every walk of life, from every experience, and how in this man's and in, in this man's time of need, when he has been rejected by the religious community. When he is searching for you, crying out for you, you send the message of your love and grace to him, to him specifically, an Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner, a sexually altered human being, someone who was ridiculed and stigmatized uh, and who was very, very alone. And yet you loved him enough to bring the good news of Jesus to him. And that's just kind of overwhelming to me when I think about it. And when we realize how much you love each and every one of us, no matter what we look like, where we're from, uh, our backgrounds, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you love each and every one of us. And you love the people in our neighborhoods, our communities. And in so many respects, we don't have to go. We don't have to leave the area to reach the world. The world has come to us because... Our neighborhoods are filled with people who are different, speak a different language, who bring different cultures. And so oftentimes we, we shy away from them. We, we, in some cases, I suppose, hold them in contempt or we just simply ignore them, whatever it is, and how that must break your heart. And Lord, I pray that, I pray that you would forgive us for that, and I pray that you would help us as we experience the joy of, of knowing your grace in our lives through Jesus, that we would bring that joy to others, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like. Um, that's what your grace does. It changes us. It changes people. It gives us joy and a desire to let others know about it, about you. May we be that kind of people. May we be more like Philip. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? I want to thank you all for being uh, with us this morning. And you know, there's so much in that text that I wanted to talk about. So little time, you know. Um, but the one thing that the, the Ethiopians experience for me is, you know, how he was just kind of dissed by religion. You know, he was, he was considered an outcast. He was rejected not allowed in, and um, it's just so sad, you know, for the guy. I just kind of, 
it just felt for him as I was reading the text. And, and yet here comes, here comes Philip with such good news of God's love and grace and that Jesus makes that available to every single one of us. We just embrace it and, and believe in him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And man, I, I hope you understand that. Uh, and I hope that you've come to a place in your life because you have to come to that place. It's, you don't become a Christian by osmosis. You know, I can't make you a Christian. You can't make me one. You have to decide. You have to, I have to come to a point of decision where you say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was led like a lamb to the slaughter for me. And I believe I'm, I'm going to follow after him. And then the grace of God, you know, overflows into us. We experience it, and it begins to change us from the inside out. And if you've never, if you've never experienced that, if that hasn't happened to you, then, um, then you need to make that decision to be a follower of Jesus. You, can, you know, there's no magic words. There's, you don't need me to, to be with you. You can do it on your own. You just say, I believe, Jesus. I believe you love me and died for me. So I hope you've done that. Um, if you have questions about it, you want to talk to somebody, follow the service, some of our prayer team folks will be down here in the front. You can come and talk with them. They'll be happy to share with you. Uh, next week, you know, it's interesting about this, this book of Acts, how it unfolds. Because first, the, you know, the, the message of grace and Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And so all these Jewish people believe, and from the Hellenistic Jews, the Hebraic Jews, they all believe. And then, and then persecution breaks out, and then the church ventures out to Samaria, where basically the people were part, they were ethnically Jewish, but they had married with other, other, other cultures. And so, they, you know, so they're kind of half Jewish. So then the gospel goes to them, and now the gospel's gone to an Ethiopian. And uh, next week, uh, the news of God's grace is going to go to a guy who would be the last person you would think. Uh, God would want to save. And that's a guy who was killing Christians, persecuting the church. And yet um, the grace of God goes to him as well. It's a fascinating story. I hope you can come back. We're going to take a look at it together. Okay. In the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, I pray this morning that, um, that we would each, no matter where we are in our lives, that we would each have a great sense of your love and your grace because we've placed our faith in Jesus and if we haven't I pray that we would do it and I pray as a church that you would you would open our eyes to the world around us and that we would see people as you see them as those you love care about those who need to hear the good news of your grace offered in Jesus this week, as we go our own way, as we uh, go to our homes and vacation, whatever we're doing, I pray that we would, we would go with that, that joy that, that grace brings and the joy that the gospel brings and that we would live our lives serving others, sharing with others in such a way that we would point them to Jesus and their lives would be changed too. And so I pray that your hand of grace and peace and strength rest on your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.